Beloved, as most of you know, we're starting a new sermon series this morning in the Gospel of Mark. And so I want you to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1, to the Gospel of Mark, to chapter 1. And we're going to read this morning together the first 15 verses. Um, But we're really going to confine our attention this morning um, to really the first verse and the hint, a hint from the second verse. So let's stand together. And, uh, and let's read these words together this morning, um, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. This is the word of the living God. Mark writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair. And wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, three times in those 15 verses we read that word gospel. The good news. The glad tidings. The word that sinners desperately need to hear. Father, I pray that you will unstop our ears this morning. And I pray, Lord God, that you will give us eyes to see. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give us hearts to receive with gladness the testimony of your holy word to the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ, who is the gospel. I pray, Lord, that all of our attention and all of our focus Father, it would be where it needs to be. I pray that everything that would conspire to distract us from the truth, everything that would conspire, Lord God, to to take our mind off of the word that we're looking at today, I pray, Father God, that you would would just, just make it all powerless right now. That, Father, our minds and our hearts because of the work of your spirit, would be laser-focused today. And I pray, Lord God, that you would be glorified in the proclamation of your word. I ask, Lord, that you would empty me of myself and any reliance upon myself. And, Father, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and that you would give me the Spirit's unction and that I would speak, Lord God, not words of my own devising, but words, Lord God, in alignment and in concurrence with your desire. I pray that you would set a guard upon my lips and that I might speak that which is pleasing in your sight. And, God, I pray. Father, I pray for those that are in this room I pray for those that will hear this you know, message on the internet. I, I pray, Lord God, that you, will, that you will arrest our hearts together and make us to be enthralled 
with Christ as we should be. Lord, come and meet with us. Come and meet with us in such a way that, Lord God, at at the end of this time that we have together in worship, we would speak with astonishment at how powerfully we felt the presence of the living God. Come and glorify yourself among us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll remember I said a couple of sermons back. Hopefully you'll remember if you listened to the last you know, sermon, couple sermons. You remember that I said when we were talking about revival, I said that Martin Lloyd-Jones de- defined revival in this way. He said, revival above everything else is the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The restoration of him to the center of the life of the church. Right? Well, if that's what revival is, okay? If Martin Lloyd-Jones is right, and I think he is, then I just want you to know how grateful I am that we are beginning this morning a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. How glad I am that by God's providence, here we are in the Gospel of Mark a gospel that is unapologetically all about the Lord Jesus Christ, right? As has been our custom, like this is what we do. Like when we get done with a, with a theologically dense book, like say a Romans or an Ephesians, right? When we get done with a theologically really dense book, our habit has always been to, to go back to a gospel, to go back to one of the gospels and preach through one of the gospels and to be reminded that Christianity is not just a matter of mere precepts and theological, you know, propositions, right? Right? Our faith is grounded in a person. Our faith is grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's always good for us, lest we become like those ivory tower theologians that pick nits incessantly, over things that are of no grand significance. It's important that we return to the Gospels and have our eyes filled again by the glory of Christ. Have our eyes filled again by the wonder of this divine life like no other. Amen? So that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do over the next I don't know how long. It probably won't take me as long to preach through Mark as it took me to preach through Romans, although I'm not promising anything. But the truth is, Mark goes a little faster. I just want to sort of set the stage for us this morning. I'm not going to go into a really long introduction with with you, a, a bunch of different descriptions of here's the themes and here's the this and here's the that. You can find that in a study Bible, okay? I'm not going to go into all that. And I'm not going to go into it for a second reason. The other reason I'm not going to go into that is because I'm not going to do something that wouldn't have been done for those who first received this gospel. It's not like when, when, when the, the, the Roman citizens, and this was probably written for Rome, for, for Romans, it's not like when they got the, the gospel of Mark that there was a little, you know, little uh, packet that came along with it and said, now here's what you need to be looking for as you're reading through this gospel. No, they just read it. They just read it, and it transformed their lives. So let me just give you a few brief statements about it so you kind of know a little bit about it. And then, beloved, I want to talk about what it means what, what really is a gospel? So let me just make a, a couple of statements. First of all, I want you to know this. This gospel of Mark is the first, it is the oldest of the four gospels of Jesus Christ that were written, right? It's also, you know, the shortest. And so for that reason, it's kind of gotten short shrift. People don't really preach that much from the gospel of Mark, but we should. Because here's the reality, right? Because this is the first you know, and the oldest of the four Gospels of Jesus Christ that were, that were written, Mark's Gospel establishes for us what a Gospel ought to be, right? It, it establishes for us the pattern of what a Gospel is. Like, here's the deal. A Gospel's not a biography, right? If you've read a biography, you know that when you read a biography, the, you know, in fact, I've got the biography of, of Teddy Roosevelt. It's three volumes that are like 500 pages, right? Each one of them. So it's like 1,500 pages on, on Teddy Roosevelt, who's an interesting dude, right? But not nearly as interesting as Jesus. I mean, let's just be honest, right? So this isn't a biography. That, that's not what this is. This isn't this exhaustive description of Christ's life. What it is, though, 
is an account of the most significant events in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're arranged so that we might be brought face to face with his identity as the Son of God. That we might be brought face to face with the wonder of his ministry that he performed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we might be brought face to face with the saving work that he accomplished on the cross when he bore our sins in our place and poured out his blood to pay the debt of our transgression, right? It's, it's, it's written so that they, it might bring us to repentance and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Mark doesn't set out to give us a biography of Christ, but rather to proclaim the good news about Jesus as Savior and Lord. And then second, I want to emphasize that Mark really is the author of this book. Um, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, there's ambiguity here and there. There's no ambiguity here at all. Mark is the author of this book. It's been attested to early and universally. But what we need to ask ourselves is, is where's the authority from which Mark writes this book? Because Mark wasn't an apostle, right? Mark wasn't an apostle. So where does the authority come from for this book? And the answer is, the authority comes from the apostle Peter. The apostle Peter. Now, you'll, if you remember Mark and you know any of his history, you'll know that Mark had a little hiccup in his, in his you know, Christian career, right? You remember he went out on the first missionary journey with, with, with Paul, right? And then at some point along the way, they, they had a fracture and they fell apart, you know, and he no longer went on with Paul on the first missionary journey. And then, you know, Mark and Barnabas kind of teamed up. And then later after that, Mark teamed up with the apostle Peter. And those guys were tight. In fact, they were so tight that Peter referred to him as my son, my son in the faith, similar to what Paul did with Timothy, right? And so early church uh, fathers all attest that, that Mark was Peter's interpreter. Mark was Peter's scribe. In other words, Mark heard Peter preach, and he heard Peter, you know, teach regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he put it into written form. And he put it into written form for a reason. Most scholars agree that the gospel of Mark was written right around the time when Peter was facing martyrdom at the hands of Nero. And so Peter's voice, his proclamation of Christ, was about to be silenced. But the truth that he proclaimed regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, praise God, it would be preserved by Mark. And it would be used. You know, the, the message would, you know, the gospel would be used to proclaim the message of the Lord Jesus Christ in the world, to continue to proclaim the message of Christ in the churches down to this very day, the one true gospel, right? So that's the background, really. It's really all that, that, that those that were in Rome, and again, this was written in Rome primarily for a Gentile audience. That's all that those who received this gospel would have understood. The question is, the question is, what is this gospel that Mark talks about? What is this gospel that Mark talks about? And that's why I want us to spend the majority of our time this morning. I want us to consider this question. What does Mark mean when he describes his book as, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. I want to point something out here that you may not know, that you may not even have noticed, right? But Mark is the only one of the writers of the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's the only one who refers to what he has written as the Gospel. He's the only one. So how do we understand that, right? How, how should we understand that? So let's talk about it a little bit this morning. Here's what I want you to understand, number one. The word gospel, it just simply means good news or, or glad tidings or joyous message. And it's a word, right, that has become part of our English, our Christian lexicon, right? It's part of our Christian lexicon, but I want you to understand something. It didn't originate with Christians. It didn't. 
That word did not originate, gospel did not originate with Christians. Throughout history, the word gospel has actually been employed in a variety of different ways. It was used, for instance, to describe good news that came from a battle, right? That was considered gospel. It's been used to to describe a good report from a sorcerer or a priest or an oracle, right, that they supposedly received from one of the many false gods and idols of ancient humanity. That was considered gospel. The word was used to describe the ascent of a king to the throne. That was gospel news. It was used to describe the birth of royal children. It was used to to, uh, explain or, or identify the proclamations that emperors would make who considered themselves gods, whatever they would proclaim, whatever things they would say, that was considered gospel. So that word gospel that we use was not a uniquely Christian word throughout history. In fact, it wasn't a Christian word at all until we took possession of it and then invested it with a specific meaning and then never gave it back. So how did the word gospel become a Christian word? How did that happen? What does does Mark mean by the word gospel? Well, we don't have to guess. Beloved, all we have to do is follow the clues. All we have to do is follow the clues that Mark gives us. And the clue that he specifically gives to us is in verse 2. That if we want to understand gospel, then we need to look no further than Isaiah the prophet. That's where we look. We look to Isaiah the prophet, right? We look back to the Old Testament, specifically to the prophet Isaiah and to his proclamation of the good news. And I want us to look in just two specific places. And if you've been here on Wednesday nights, some of this will sound familiar, some of it will sound new, but if you haven't been... First of all, you need to start coming on Wednesday nights. And then second, um, this will be helpful to you. First thing I want you to do is turn with me to Isaiah 40. Okay, I want us to look in two specific places. First, turn with me to Isaiah 40. Okay, a passage that prophetically looks forward to the coming of the Messiah from the living God. Right, And so look look first at verse 3 with me. Look first at verse 3 with me. The very verse that, that Mark quotes here. And there Isaiah writes, a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So the first thing we're supposed to understand when we try to figure out what is the gospel, what do we mean here by gospel, the first thing that we're to understand as Christians, okay, is that there is a proclamation that is being made, a proclamation that originates with Almighty God, a proclamation that, that the Lord is coming, that the King is coming, that things are not going to stay the way that they are, but that God is going to invade His creation, that God is going to come, you know, and, and, and invade his, 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 the presence of His people, and our calling is this, get ready, prepare yourself. Prepare the way because God is coming to his people. Now, if we just stop there, the question we got to ask is, well, is that good news or is that bad news? Right? Is that good news or or is that bad news? Is that something to dread? You know, is God coming in judgment? Is God coming to bring retribution upon us for all of our rebelliousness against him? Is God coming to execute his wrath like we deserve? Or is something else going to happen? We're hoping for this something else, right? Well, that question is answered for us in verses 9 through 11. Jump down there in Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11. And we read this. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. 
He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. When you read that, you realize, well, it's kind of a mixed bag. It's good news for some people and not good news for others. God's coming with reward, but he's also coming with recompense. Right? And the defining difference is, are you his lamb? Do you belong to him? Are you one of his own or are you not? But on the very surface of the good news, we see this. The good news is, behold your God. The good news is, be astonished, be amazed, be in awe of your God. That's the word behold. That's what it means. Behold doesn't mean to casually behold God. It doesn't mean to just kind of oh acknowledge God's presence, that God's doing something. It means to be floored by the glory of the living God. That's what it means. It means to be amazed. It means to respond in the same way that Isaiah did when he saw the pre-incarnate Christ in Isaiah 6. To be shaken to his very core. To be overwhelmed with his sinfulness and what it deserves. But to be even more amazed that God is coming in his might, and to rule and to give reward to those whom he chooses. God is coming. The gospel is God is coming. He's coming with might and power. His arm's going to rule for him. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's no one will be able to stand, no enemy will be able to stand before his power. He will come with the strength of a divine warrior. He comes as a shepherd who will lovingly care for his sheep. And nobody's going to be left behind. He's going to come with reward and blessing for his people. And he's going to, going to come with recompense for his enemies. The good news is that God is coming. And as we know, beloved, he has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But we're not done. We're not done. Turn to Isaiah 52. In Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 10, again, you can turn there if you want to. Isaiah gives even greater definition to the good news. There we read these words. Look at it, starting in verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before all the eyes of the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Again, we see the proclamation of the good news, right? The gospel. And what's the substance of this good news? Well, the the substance of this good news is three things. It's composed of three things. First, peace with God. Second, happiness or joy in the Lord. And then third, the gift of salvation. So at first we see the good news is behold your God, see your God, here comes your God, right? Prepare yourself for your God. And now it is your God reigns. And this is the way that his reign is going to be expressed towards his people. This is how your God comes to reign. He comes to bring peace for his people, the end of his wrath against our sins, the reconciliation of sinful man to the holy God. He comes to bring shalom, right? The Hebrew word for peace, that condition where everything is just as it is intended to be, where nothing's out of place, where nothing's dislocated, where nothing is left hanging or incomplete or unfulfilled, when we are in a state of perfect reconciliation to Almighty God. He comes as a king who reigns. 
to bring joy in him, to bring happiness in the Lord. That is to bring delight and satisfaction in him. He's a king who comes to make his subjects completely content in him. In him. And then last, he's a king who comes to bring salvation. He comes to bring divine victory over the consequences of our sin, over real guilt. Yeah, you hear sometimes, you should never feel guilty. You should if you're a sinner. You should if you sin. Well, that's not very healthy. No, lying and telling people that they shouldn't feel guilty is what's not healthy. Not to your soul, anyway. He comes to deal with real guilt and real condemnation. He comes, this king does, to deal with the debt of our sins. He comes to deal with the power of sin and breaks that oppression forever. That's the idea. He's the king who comes to grant freedom from true guilt and the gift of a right standing with God. Well, how can that be? How can anyone do that for such wretched sinners like us? I mean, remember, right, the history of those to whom Isaiah is writing. It's Israel and Judah who have proven themselves to be, uh, you know, the most wretched of idolaters and wicked sinners that have ever existed on the earth. Why do I say that? Weren't the pagan nations worse? No, they weren't, and I'll tell you why. Because Israel and Judah had the revelation of the living God. They didn't. How in the world can this be accomplished? How in the world can this take place? And the answer to that question is, your God reigns. Your God reigns. Your God is sovereign over everything. Your God has no opponents that can do anything against him. Your God reigns. He is the irresistible sovereign king of the universe. And he guides the course of history and the life of every human being according to his desired end. Your God reigns. That means he rules. That means there is no one who can successfully withstand his will. He's the king. He's the king. And he's bared his holy arm, the Lord Jesus Christ, before the nations and and the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. God reveals his power and his authority for those who are trampled down by the enemy of their souls and broken on the rack of their own sin. He reveals his power as the one who can deliver those helplessly imprisoned in the darkness of fleshly desire And under his righteous wrath, who have forfeited any good from God because of our deliberate rebellion and the trampling of his holy law, he alone can rescue and redeem enemies and rebels and make them his own because he is the sovereign God and no one can resist his will. He reigns. He reigns. Not sin. Sin does not have the last word. Fallen humanity Praise God does not have the last word. The schemes and the machinations of Satan and his minions do not have the last word. The corruption of this sin-cursed world, the darkness of the human mind, the deadness of fallen souls, they do not have the last word. God does because your God reigns. That's good news. That's good news. God will act, and he has acted in history, and he's done it in the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem a people for himself to the praise of his everlasting glory. That is the greatest of good news. So behold your God. Your God reigns. He's the one who saves the humble, and he judges the proud. Your God reigns. He reigns. He moves. He intervenes. He acts. He saves. That's the very heart of the good news. Your God reigns, right? Right? Those, that word translated as good news in the Hebrew Old Testament, translated by the word gospel in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Gospel became our word. It is our word. 
And you know, when we read through the New Testament, right, we hear the gospel, it's described in so many ways. I can't, I can't list all of them, but I just, I just want to bring your attention to the way in which the gospel is spoken of in, in, in the New Testament, right? First of all, the gospel is called the, the gospel of, of God, right? We see that, you know, right here when, when, when we're told that, that G, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, verse 14, right? It's called the gospel of God. What does that mean? Well, it means this. It means the gospel that we proclaim, the gospel that Isaiah proclaimed, that gospel That good news, listen, it finds its source, it finds its origin in God himself. That's what that means. It finds its origin in God himself. We didn't cajole God into inventing, if you will, the gospel. We didn't manipulate God into into establishing the gospel. It's not a product of, of our pining. It's not a product of our philosophy or our scholarship. It's not a theory or a human system of ethics. The gospel was not invented by man. You know, people try to say that. Oh, the gospel's made up. Are you kidding me? No human being would ever create a gospel in which you are hopelessly condemned to hell by your own actions and the only way that you can be redeemed is if God looks upon your sorry, wretched state, acts in compassion and love, sends forth his holy son whom sinners despise and rejected, who lives a perfect life and dies on the cross and rises from the dead. He suffers the humiliating death that every single one of us deserves and the only way that you can be be saved is that you humble yourself and you confess your sins and you repent of them and you believe upon Christ and then you will be saved no human being comes up with that I don't care who you are I don't care how many years you give them nobody comes up with that story they always come up with a story in which they're the hero somehow or another they're the hero isn't that true people that say oh gospel it's made up you're kidding me clown who do you nobody makes a story like this it's the gospel of God He's revealed it to us. He has told us what he has done. And you know what? Rather than quibble with him about how he's done it, maybe we ought to just be grateful to be beneficiaries of his divine wisdom. What do you think? What do you think? When we read the New Testament, the gospel is called the the gospel of the grace of God. That is, it flows forth from the unmerited, undeserved unearned favor of God to wretched sinners. To wretched sinners. It springs forth from God's rich and steadfast and unfailing love that opens the radiant pathway to heaven through no merit of our own. Instead, the first connection between us and the gospel is our demerit. It's our sinfulness. Gospel is not a religion of human effort. I just try real hard, and God looks at me and gives me a, grades me on the curve. God doesn't do that. People are going to be surprised on the day of judgment. Professing Christians, when they get there and think, "Well, you know, I didn't really pursue godliness. I didn't really pursue holiness," which the writer of Hebrews says, "Without which no one will see the Lord." But they're going to be surprised when they get there and find out, "You know, I tried really hard, and God graves on a curve." No, He doesn't. No, He doesn't. The gospel is entirely. A gospel of grace. It's a gospel of God's favor to the undeserving. His kindness to the undeserving. But that grace, that, that kindness doesn't leave us like we are. Right? It changes us. And that's why the gospel is also called the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. The word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. In other words, the gospel is timeless truth. That's the point. It's timeless truth. It's unaffected by the whims of man or the spirit of the age. 
The gospel never goes out of date. It never goes out of style. It never slips from relevancy because it's eternal truth with a capital T. And it's the only message of salvation for sinners like us. It's the only hope of eternal life. See, the gospel's not some vague and indistinct, you know, message about being a better person or, or, or coming to church and helping people out or finding your purpose or being happy or living the good life or being nice. It's the word of truth that tells each of us you're a sinner. You're lost because of your sin and you're separated from God and you deserve only hell and death. But God, out of his great grace and rich mercy, has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth in human flesh. And having lived a perfect life, he then died a sacrificial death to take the penalty of our sin upon him. And he was raised from the dead three days later so that you could receive his righteousness and the forgiveness of God if you will repent of your sins and trust in him and what he has done. If you will surrender your life to him as Lord and as God. And that gospel, it's the power of God, Scripture says. The power of God. In other words, the gospel is just not a, a message of mere words. Mere, you know, thoughts that you acquiesce to. Mere thoughts that you go, I'm not, yeah, that sounds right. No, no. The gospel is not just a message of mere words. It's a message that is living, active, and powerful. Praise God, it is able to crush a proud and a hardened heart. Praise God that's so. And then to create a new one that is humble and that is teachable in its place. The, the, the gospel of God, the, the word of God is powerful to convict of sin and to grant repentance and faith in Christ. It is powerful to renew a darkened mind that has been radically twisted by our darkened age. It is powerful, beloved, to, to transform the character and the desires of the human soul. To not leave you as you are, right? But to change you, to shape you into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God has the power to do that. It's not like any other word. The Word of God has the power to inflame the affections of the soul toward God. When my heart, when my heart is growing cold, when my heart is growing cold, all I need do is pick up the word of God and read it till I've read it. You know what I mean? Do you know what I mean by that, right? Not just pick it up and read a couple verses. I mean read it till I've read it. Read it till I have met with the living God. Read it until Christ has been glorified in front of my eyes. Read it until the Holy Spirit has laid hold of my heart and shaped and changed me. That's all I got to do. And my heart is inflamed in a way that it wasn't before. The Word of God has the power to increasingly reshape and remold a man or a woman into the image of Christ. Listen to me, beloved. The gospel has a power that nothing else in the world possesses. Nothing. Atom bombs, nothing. Viruses, nothing has the power of the Word of God. And it's been proven throughout history. It's been proven throughout history, has it not? The greatest days for the people of God have always been when the gospel has been held in highest esteem. That's a fact. And everything else by which we measure churches, you know, how many, how many they have, or you know, how big they're, do they have a Starbucks? All that stuff is worthless. All that stuff is worthless. It's a bunch of gimmicky garbage. The church is at its zenith when the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ are in highest estimation. Last, it is called the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The gospel, 
It reveals to us, doesn't it? Magnifies the glory of the only true God. Again, it's called the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That is the God who's eternally happy. The God who's absolutely satisfied in himself. The God who needs nothing else to make himself the joyful God. And yet, it's the gospel of his glory, his sovereignty, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his wisdom, the, the, the gospel of his love and grace and mercy and power by which he saves people and makes them eternally happy in him. Everything that makes God, God, is revealed in the gospel. Okay then. Okay then. Why then? Does Mark use the term gospel and nobody else does? And why does he say it in the way that he does? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's his point. Beloved, what he is saying is this. That this gospel message, that this good news, this good news that Isaiah proclaimed, behold your God, your God reigns. Your God is coming. Your God is bringing peace and joy and salvation. That good news that God is invading his creation and he's going to redeem his people and he's going to judge his enemies. That declaration of the good news is summed up in one person alone. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is saying, you know what? I'm writing this because I want you all to understand that this gospel that I'm writing, this word of truth that is proclaimed to mankind, this message of the good news of salvation, man, it comes to full fruition and, 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 and full consummation, and it is summed up only in the person of Jesus Christ alone, in all that he is, in everything that he's done, in his unique glory and power, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection from the dead, it is all summed up in him, that it's in him that the glorious God redeems people from the ravages and the devastation of sin and death and Satan and will undo the curse that afflicts all of creation. It's in him. And I want you to understand that. I'm writing this gospel so that you get something. So that you understand that Jesus Christ is not someone you can take lightly. He's not just a figure of history. He's not just someone about whom great things were said and horrible things were said. His life was a life like none other. What he did, nobody else has ever come close to. What he has accomplished, the things that he spoke, the way that he identified himself. I'm telling you that the good news of God, it's found in one person. In fact, I think it's awesome the way that Mark, he doesn't just say Jesus in Nazareth, does he? Does he? That's purposeful. It's purposeful. Instead, he speaks of him as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we oftentimes, and you know, in short term, this is the way it's become in, 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 uh, you know, in, in our time, that, that we, we say that Christ is Jesus' last name. We refer to him as like Jesus Christ, like, his, like that's his last name, like Nick Schaefer, Jesus Christ, right? That's not what that is. That, that's, not, that's not how it works. His name was probably actually... Jesus bar Joseph, son of Joseph, Jesus, son of Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth, right? But instead, Mark describes him here as Jesus Christ, the son of God. Here's why he does that. It's because the entire gospel is comprehended in that just, that, just that phrase, just, just that description of him, right? I mean, we know what Jesus means, right? If you remember back to the Christmas sermons, we know that Jesus, that name that was you know, given to him from heaven, that, that name means Yahweh saves, right? Yahweh is salvation, then second, that title Christ, and that's what it is, it's a, a title, it is the Greek word 
for the Hebrew word Messiah or king or anointed one, right? And so the idea is he's the Savior, but he's also the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the king. He's the one who's endued with power from on high to accomplish his mission of salvation. He is the king who is the anointed one, the king that has all power and sovereign authority, the king before whom everybody will give an account, the king who has the power to save and to condemn, the king who reigns over all and is working out his purposes in history for God's glory and for the good of his church. He's the king. He's the savior, and he's the king. And the reason that he is an effective savior and king is because he is the only begotten son of God. He's God in the flesh. He's God come to save man. And so here's what Mark is saying. Here's what he's doing. It's almost like a challenge. When he says the beginning of the gospel of, the, of Jesus Christ, the son of God, here's what he's saying. Wherever you turn in this book, Wherever you dive in, in this book, you are going to see the facts about Christ. And what you're going to see are facts that prove his identity. Everywhere you turn in these 16 chapters, you are going to come face to face with the divine king, the Lord Jesus Christ, because every paragraph and every occurrence and every event, except for two about John the Baptist, are all about him. It's all about him. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ giving if irrefutable proof that he's no mere man. He's no earthly king. He's the son of God. He's the divine king who rules over all and with whom you must have to do. How do you respond? The gospel's about all that. Yeah, that's, all. that's what it's all about. It's about all that. We jump into this book. Don't do it. I'm cautioning you now. Don't do it like, well, I've read the Gospels before. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? How many of y'all, when you were, no show of hands, how many of y'all, though, when you were going through the, you know, read the Bible through in a year plan and you got behind? And your reading was a gospel reading. How many of you just kind of like opened it up and looked and it was like, yeah, I know what's in there. Kept going. We need to be prepared, beloved, to be astonished again. You hearing me? To sit and ponder as we see Jesus Christ preach the word of God with authority and power unlike anything anybody had ever seen. When he speaks parables that left some people utterly confused. And then others to whom God had given eyes to see and ears to hear and who understood. We need to ponder anew the wonder that this one the Lord Jesus, how he casts out evil spirits in a worship service. How he heals a man born blind. How he heals a paralytic with a word. How he rescues a man who is under demonic possession who looks like some of the people that you see screaming and yelling and acting like wackos on TV in some of these like protests, right? This man who can't even be contained by chains and Jesus casts out those demons and puts a man who has been mentally tormented for we don't know how long in his right mind, in an instant. How he feeds multitudes with five loaves of bread and two fishes. How he walks on water and more. Everything that causes Peter to confess you are the Christ, 
That's who you are. You're the Christ. Let's see beneath the miracles. To the, you know, beneath the power and the authority that the Lord Jesus Christ you know, demonstrated and see that it testifies that the true king had come and that he was that Messiah. He is the divine king over all. And so all of these things that he does and all these things that he says and all these things that he is, they all testify to the fact that he is unique that he is really the Son of God, and that's what makes his death and his resurrection of worth. Right? As the divine king, he conquered hell and sin and death. He destroyed the power of the devil. He did it by taking upon himself the sins of his people, paying them in full on the cross, and then rising from the grave on the third day. In fact, before he goes to the cross, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Scripture says, Jesus said, I am. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You want to know why? Another reason Mark says in this opening verse, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He calls it the beginning because because Christ coming into this corrupted and defiled world for sinners, the arrival of the king who establishes a new kingdom, the greatest king ever, as glorious as that is, as glorious as the story of his life on this earth is, as wonderful as that is, it's just the beginning of the story. It's just the beginning of the story. The true story that has no end. The story that will be proclaimed as long as the earth exists and which will be finally and fully consummated in the new heavens and the new earth where Christ rules and reigns forever over sinners who have been made saints by the grace of God. The account of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Mark is just the beginning. A beginning with no end. Praise God. So we need to decide today, how is it we're going to respond to the gospel? How is it that we're going to position our hearts to hear these words? How are we going to come in here week after week? Are we going to come in here expecting the pastor to entertain us? Are we going to come in here expecting the pastor to fire up our hearts? Are we going to come in here expecting the pastor to stoke in me thanksgiving and gratitude and create in me a spirit of worship and create in me a spirit of, uh, 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 to hear and receive the word of God? Or are we going to actually prepare our own hearts as we should and come ready to receive the truth? And rather than expecting the preacher to inflame our hearts, praying that God would inflame the preacher's heart while he's studying in his, in, in his study and while he's preparing the word of God and while he's preparing to come and to proclaim words of life that we desperately need to hear. I don't often ask you to pray for me, right? It's usually big stuff. Oh, hey, I got melanoma. Will you guys pray? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. I'm saying to you, I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray for me just as I pray for you. As I am laboring prayerfully under the leadership, I pray of the Holy Spirit to bring out the truth of this word. And I would ask you to pray that God would help me to understand not just the words, but the heart of the words. And not just the surface, but the depth. And to bring forth not just facts, but divine truth that creates faith in the human heart. And pray that all of us will be freshly in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark means for us to see that the gospel is summed up in Jesus, the Son of God. And only in Him because there's only one gospel. And it's found in the Lord. I'll close with these words from J.C. Ryle. I love J.C. Ryle almost as much as Charles Spurgeon. 
It's like 1A and 1B. He said, that's so right. He said, no one can be saved from sin. It's guilt. It's power and it's consequences except by Jesus Christ. No one can have peace with God the Father, obtain pardon in this world, and escape the wrath to come in the next except through the atonement and the mediation of Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, God's rich provision of salvation for sinners is treasured up. By Christ alone, God's abundant mercies come down from heaven to earth. Christ's blood alone can cleanse us. Christ's righteousness alone can clothe us. Christ's merit alone can give us a title to heaven. Jews and Gentiles, learned and unlearned, kings and poor men, all alike, must either be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ or be lost forever. There is no other person commissioned, sealed, and appointed by God the Father to be the Savior of sinners except Christ. The keys of life and death are committed to His hand, and all who would be saved must go to Him. Man's case appears to be a hopeless one without a Savior, and a mighty Savior too. There must be a mediator, an atonement, an advocate to make such poor, sinful beings acceptable with God. And I find this nowhere except in Jesus Christ. I find this nowhere except in the gospel enfleshed in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning, the Lord, as we consider these words that we've heard, Lord, that the very purpose that you have for them in each of our lives would be fulfilled. That the very purpose you have for each of us with these words would be fulfilled. I pray, Lord, for those that are in Christ. I pray, Father, that Christ would become more glorious and more beautiful in our eyes. I pray that Christ will be exalted and magnified before us. I pray that, Lord God, our hearts would be sensitive to behold the glory of Jesus as we dive into this gospel written by Mark. God, I pray that... you would strengthen our faith. That you would make greater our worship. That, Lord God, you would make greater our obedience to you. That in every way, Christ would capture us. And, Father, we, we would be enamored with Jesus in such a way that, Lord God, we would desire to follow him. Believe in Him and follow Him in all things as closely as the Spirit leads and empowers. I pray for those, Lord God, that are here today that are, that are not in Christ, that do not confess Christ as Savior and Lord, or who confess Christ as Savior and Lord, but whose lives deny the reality of that confession, who continue in rebellion and sin and call it lesser things who don't take seriously their walk with Christ. I'm praying, Father, that you would enthrone Christ in their eyes. I pray that those who are living in sin and, and have not professed faith in Christ, I pray that you would grip them with the reality of their, of their rebellion against you, with the reality of their law-breaking with the reality that their law-breaking demands a penalty, and that penalty is eternal punishment in hell apart from the presence of God. I pray that they wouldn't try to... that you would not allow them, Lord God, to comfort themselves by telling themselves that this isn't really true, that it's just, you know, these people's truth, that it's not the truth, because, Lord, it is. I pray you'd turn them from their sin, and I pray them that... I pray that you would open their eyes to behold the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and that you'd save them. And then, Lord, I pray as well 
Father, for the half-hearted. For those who, again, are not decided in their walk, but who play with sin as if it's no big thing. And then, when sin brings destruction in their lives, claim grace as the get-out-of-jail-free get card. I pray, Lord God, that Christ would be enthroned as not just an easy believism Savior, but as He is, the Lord over all. So, Lord, I just pray you meet with us during this time of prayer. I pray that you would draw people's hearts out to you in the appropriate way. And... Um, God, do your work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.